We are going to begin a study in Paul's letter to the church at Thessalonica, or as it's pronounced today, it is a a city that remains to this day there in northern Greece. It's pronounced Thessaloniki. It's a a real um, just kind of urban, uh, modern city there in Greece. It's one of the only cities uh, that Paul wrote to and ministered in that still remains to this day. Uh, it's, a, it's a hub there in Greece, in, in the northern Greece area. Um, Paul writes to this city, really, after having been there just a few weeks previous uh, to writing the letter. And if you look over in Acts chapter 17, if you keep your thumb there in 1 Thessalonians, turn back to Acts 17, just a few books back to the book of Acts, and there in the book of Acts, we find sort of the story surrounding how this church got started and how Paul planted this church. Look at Acts 17, starting in verse 1. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them, and for three Sabbaths, or about three weeks reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ, that Jesus had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded. And a great multitude of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women, joined Paul and Silas. So there was fruit right away in in Paul's ministry there in Thessalonica. But the Jews who were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace and gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason has harbored them, and these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar saying, There is another king, Jesus. And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. So when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. And so Paul is just there a few weeks, and as was typical, he creates a riot. Wherever Paul went, he either created a revival or a riot or both. Just that kind of guy. And here he's in Thessalonica. He preaches the gospel. He tells them of Jesus He expounds the word of God to them, and some get saved. The Jews get ticked off. They run them out of town. And so he goes from there to Berea, has a great time of ministry there. Then on to Athens, where, of course, he gives the famous sermon on Mars Hill. And then from there to Corinth, where he plants a church, and he stays there for an extended period of time. And while in Corinth, Paul writes this letter to the believers, these fledgling believers, these new believers, this brand new church there in Thessalonica. He, he writes a letter to them and he wants to encourage them because he had experienced firsthand what they are now going to experience the rest of their lives, persecution. He had experienced what they are going through and that is hatred 
and animosity and vitriol from the surrounding people, those that did not know the Lord, the Jews that were angry that they were preaching Jesus Christ. And so Paul wants to encourage them. He wants to give them hope. And that's why we're calling this series in 1 Thessalonians, Hope in Jesus. Now, I think that's timely for this time that we're living in. We're living in a time where there is so much unrest, so many questions. People are predicting the greatest economic crisis since the depression of the late 1920s. I don't know if that's true or not. It it could be. It very well could be. I mean, obviously we're seeing things that, that we've never seen in our lifetimes. $700 billion bailouts, which some say is actually more like $1.5 trillion, that they're hiding numbers from the American people. We, we've never seen things like this. We've, we've never seen uh, businesses being bailed out at the rate that they are. And the, the influential companies that are just folding up before our eyes. The amount of foreclosures that are happening in our uh, housing market is, is just unprecedented. But in a lot of ways, our, our nation and our spending habits has brought this upon ourselves, And we know that. But we want to blame God, don't we? We want to say, well, well, God, why is this happening to me when in fact we've overextended ourselves and our own personal life is just a microcosm of what's happening in the nation. But despite that, despite the fact that maybe we've brought it on ourselves, we're experiencing a time in our nation, in our own lives personally, where we need hope. We need hope. I just read something the other day that, that said that one out of every two people, 50% of our population as an American people will face some type of cancer. 50% of our nation is going to be inflicted with some type of cancer. It, it's, it's huge. There, there's Folks in our own church here dealing with that. There's people here in our church that are dealing with death of loved ones, with major physical illness, with, with things that they don't know how to handle. And they need hope. You need hope this morning. And that's what we want to talk about. That's what I want to talk about as we, we make our way through First Thessalonians is hope. And really, Paul ends each chapter of 1 Thessalonians talking about where our hope should be firmly planted, and that is in the coming of Jesus Christ that is described in the book of Titus as our blessed hope. Now, some Christians want to just say, well, how can it be my hope if I don't know when it's happening? I have no idea when Jesus is coming back, and so how can it be something I put hope in? Well, the fact of the matter is, is that Jesus may not come back in his second coming during our lifetime, but... Even our death brings about the coming of Christ for us. Even passing from this life until the next brings about His coming for us personally. And so we take hope in that. We take hope in the fact that we will see Jesus. Other Christians want to say, you know, I hate this world and I hate everything about it and it's this doom and gloom and, and you know just kind of this sour face that Christians get sometimes and, and it's picketing and it's, you know, just kind of hate everything that has anything to do with the world at all. If it, if it doesn't have an association with the church or with something Christian, then we just hate it. 
We hate public schools and, you know, we hate the government and we hate secular music and we hate the TV and we hate everybody that isn't associated with us and we can't wait to just get raptured off this world that we hate so much. Meanwhile, if you take a step back, you say, this earth was created by God. Everything we see was created by God. These people that we say we hate are made in the image of God. This government that we say we can't stand, that we want to rebel against, and we want to you know, build a, a shack up in the mountains, and, and everybody live together in some weird com- communal type situation. You know, we see it on TV, and it, it makes us look bad. I don't know if you guys realize that, but that makes us look really bad. Because they always, if they get interviewed, they're always talking about Jesus, Right? We're up here because Jesus is coming back, you know, and they got a big target painted on their chest and, you know, come and get me, you know. And it, it makes us look bad. It's horrible. And actually, Paul writes this letter to the Thessalonians because of these very perspectives. You guys, we aren't called to hate the world. We're not called to be separate from everything in this world. We're called to be separate from the sin of this world. But we're not called to hate the government. God has set the government up for us. And whoever becomes president will be put into office by the sovereign hand of God. And and we don't know what will come. But oftentimes you, you look in the Old Testament and you see God putting kings and rulers in place for judgment upon the people. You look at what the early Christians, these people right here that Paul is writing to, you look at the rulers and the government that they had to submit to, Caesar Nero, who was a lunatic, who killed Christians for fun. I mean, we look at some of our politicians and, and we, we think, man, they spend too much or they're about big government or, you know, they're too conservative or whatever it is that you disagree with. And, and we're, you know, all bent out of shape about it. But, you know, I don't remember the last time one of our politicians burned somebody at the stake. And, and yet... Paul would say, submit to the government. Submit to the the system that you're in. Don't act like the rapture is going to free you from all of the things that you hate about this world. That's not what it's supposed to be. That's not the mentality that we're supposed to have. We're supposed to be excited about seeing Jesus and fellowshipping with him and communing with him. That's the point. That's where our hope is, you guys, is in Jesus. And that's what we want to communicate as we look at this this great book called 1 Thessalonians. Chapter 1 is really recalling how the church was born, how it was planted. In verse 1, Paul gives his standard greeting. Paul, Silvanus, or Silas, who accompanied Paul on this second missionary journey in which they planted this church there in Thessalonica. Silvanus was the, the, the Roman, the Latin for, for Silas. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, who you remember, came to Christ under Paul's ministry. They picked him up on this second missionary journey, and he accompanied them. And he was part of this church plant. To the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice how Paul connects God the Father and Jesus Christ. In, in many groups and in, in many uh, what we would consider to be cults, I want to separate God the Father from Jesus. And Jesus is just an angel or Jesus is just an apparition. Jesus is just a, 
a good man, an example, but the Bible teaches us that Jesus Christ is God in human flesh. And and notice the connection here between God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace, a standard greeting from Paul. Grace and peace. They were the standard greetings of the day. Grace was the standard Greek greeting, charis. And peace was the standard Hebrew greeting, shalom. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so a standard greeting from Paul, he wants them to know who's writing it and who he's writing to. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers. And the fact that Paul would say this necessitates that he actually did pray for them. And you think about that. The people that you're ministering to, maybe the people that you're reaching out to, do you pray for them? Is it something that, that you're committed to? And oftentimes, I think the lack of fruit that we see in our own ministries is a lack of prayer. And it's always convicting to me because prayer is such a difficult thing. Because there's always something else to do. There's always something that's vying for our attention throughout the day, throughout the afternoon, into the evening. And and you realize, man, I haven't spent any time in prayer today. And then maybe you think, I'll pray as I lay my head down on the pillow. And then the next thing you know... It's 6 a.m. and the alarm's going off. And you hit snooze 14 times. And now it's 7 and you got to go to work. Right? Prayer is difficult. And it necessitates this, this idea that, that Paul was giving thanks for them in prayer. I know it sounds simple, but the fact is Paul was praying for them. And, man, I, I love it when I have the, those times where, where I'm sp- just spending quality time in prayer, praying for you. I, I see the fruit of it. I, I notice the fruit of it. Paul says he was thankful for these believers. And, you know, I, I'm so thankful for this church. I, I've seen this church uh, come through, through many things, starting with, with my wife and I and, and a few others, and, and the Lord building it up slowly but surely, just adding to the church as he sees fit, people coming to Christ. I'm so thankful for this body, so thankful for you guys, and just your hearts for the Lord, your giving attitude, your servants' hearts. So thankful for what God's doing here, for the hospitality that I see in this body. Could we improve? Absolutely. We all can improve. Is there things that we're lacking? Absolutely but so thankful for this church and and that I've been a part of what God has done here in Prineville and Crook County over the last six years in God building this church from nothing and people telling me that it could never happen, it wouldn't happen here, that the vision that I had wasn't going to work, wasn't going to take place in this town that was about ready to fold up. People would tell me that all the time. Paul remembers this church for three things. He says, remembering without ceasing... Your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God our Father. And so Paul, in praying for them, in remembering them, and being thankful for them, remembers them for three specific things. And and this is going to create the outline that I want to look at this morning in the rest of our text. Because I think that these things Paul remembers them for create an outline for the rest of the passage. He remembers their work of faith, their labor of love, and their patience or endurance of hope. Now, 
if you're familiar with the book of Revelation and the letters that Jesus wrote to the seven churches, there in Revelation chapter 2, Jesus writes a letter to the church of Ephesus. It's that famous letter in which Jesus said, I have this against you, that you've left your first love. Do you know that Jesus said to them, to this church that had left their first love, he commended them for their works, for their labor, and for their endurance. The very same things that Paul commends the church at Thessalonica for. But when Jesus commended that church, he just mentioned their works, their labor, and their endurance. He didn't say their work of faith. See, it was a work, but it wasn't a work of faith. He commended their labor, but it was a labor that was without love. He commended their endurance, but it was an endurance without hope. You see the difference? And that's what we want to talk about this morning. These three things, these three characteristics of the Thessalonian believers and how I so desire these characteristics to be true of me and to be true of you, to be true of this body. Paul states these characteristics for us and now Paul describes how these characteristics looked in their lives in verses 4 through 10. First of all, their work of faith. We see that in verses 4 and 5 and then at the end of verse 9. Their work of faith. Look what he says. Knowing beloved brethren. He calls them beloved brethren. A term that was reserved only for Jewish people. Because you remember the racism that existed between Jews and Gentiles. And Paul now uses this term that was reserved only for Jews. Beloved brethren. He gives that to these Gentiles who were worshiping idols, who were pagans, and he includes them into the, the brotherhood, into the family of God. Beloved brethren, we know your election by God. We know that you've been called, that you've been set apart, that God has chosen you. How does he know that? For our gospel did not come to you in word only. In other words, he didn't go there and just preach and give the message and have it fall upon deaf ears. Our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power. And you know it. You know when you give the gospel and it's received with power. When it changes a life. So you can give the gospel message and in and of itself, it's meaningless if it doesn't change your life. For you personally... The gospel message is meaningless if it hasn't gripped your heart and changed your life. And it doesn't matter if you come week after week and you sing the songs and you hear the message and you think to yourself, wow, that is so cool, that is so great, and you feel good about yourself and you leave, but you're unchanged. It hasn't gripped your heart. Then the message is powerless for you. It's meaningless for you. But Paul says, man, when we were there in Thessalonica, it wasn't in word only. We weren't just talking to ourselves. We weren't just saying something and having it fall upon deaf ears. No, it came in much power and in the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit took the gospel and worked it into their hearts and changed their lives. Has that happened to you? Maybe you know the gospel. Maybe you know 
a little bit about the Bible. Maybe you pride yourself that your uncle was a Baptist preacher. Seems like everybody's uncle was a Baptist preacher. You know what? That doesn't mean a hill of beans. Nothing to God. God is not impressed with your uncle, with your grandmother who prayed for you, with the fact that you went to Sunday school or catechism or some other thing. God is not impressed with that. It's not that God doesn't care, but he's not impressed because he wants your heart. God does not want a list of how many times you went to church or how many times you've read the Bible. God is not impressed with any of those things. What God wants is to have fellowship with you, to have a relationship with you. That's why he came from heaven to earth. He took on human flesh and he died a criminal's death so that he could have relationship with you. Not so that you would keep a list of rules and regulations. Not so that you would have good attendance at church. Not so that you could recount facts about the Bible or about theology. That's not why Jesus came. You can Google all kinds of facts about God. But that does not make you a Christian. The facts in and of themselves are powerless and meaningless. What makes you a Christian is the Holy Spirit coming inside of you and radically changing your life. And I'll tell you this right now. If you're kind of wondering, has this happened to me? Then it hasn't. Let's just, let's just say that right now. Let's just be bold and let's just say it hasn't. Because if it has, you'll know. It isn't ambiguous. It's not gray. It's not like, wow, you know, there was this time where I think, no, when the Holy Spirit comes into your life, it's like a trailer park in Louisiana during Hurricane Katrina, okay? It just obliterates stuff, right? There's no question. Did a hurricane blow through here? I'm not really sure. I'm not, what do you think? I don't know. No, you know. The Holy Spirit comes into your life and he makes radical, substantial changes that as we're going to see, people notice. People notice them. The Holy Spirit came into their lives and Paul's recounting and he's encouraging them. Yes, you are real, true, authentic believers. Have assurance in that. I've seen the change in you. I've seen what's happened. And guess what? Other people are talking about it too. I know, beloved brethren, that you have been elected by God because our gospel did not come to you just in word. See, and this is so often what people say. I heard the word, and, and I said a prayer uh, 20 years ago, and I think I'm a Christian. That, you guys, is garbage. It's not in the Bible. There's no such thing as a sinner's prayer in the Bible. Now, yes, a prayer for a sinner is a good thing. A prayer for a sinner is a great thing. When you say, Jesus, come into my life. I want to make you my Lord. I want to make you my Savior. I want to follow you. That is an awesome thing. It's the most radical thing that you can ever pray. However, if it doesn't change your life, if you just say that and you don't really mean it and you walk away and you're unaffected, that is not some kind of a mantra that makes you a Christian. What makes you a Christian is when the Holy Spirit truly comes into your life and makes radical changes because you open yourself up to Him. Not because you repeat some words. 
Those are just simply the medium by which an open heart receives the presence of God. But if you're hardened to God and you're just going through the motions, that does not make you a Christian. And so I'm challenging you this morning. If you've never, ever truly given your life to Jesus Christ, that you would do that this morning. That you would give Jesus your heart this morning. It came to them in much assurance. As you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. And you became followers of us and of the Lord. So they heard the gospel. They, they gave their lives to Jesus in a real and true and authentic way. And they began to follow the example of Paul. They became disciples. I'll tell you one of the weaknesses of the church today is that people come to Christ and I don't know if it's pride on their part or just negligence on the part of the church, but there's a lot less of this, let me find somebody who I can emulate, who I can follow, somebody who's been on this path toward Jesus Christ longer than me, but there seems to be a lot of lone rangers in the church. A lot of people are just saying, you know what, I don't need anybody else. You guys, that is not the perspective and the mindset and the attitude of a Christian. That is not a Christian mindset. That I'm on this journey to Jesus on my own. That I'm just going to follow him and make my own way. And I've got my own ideas. It's filled with pride. They became followers of Paul and of Silas and of Timothy. Not like blindly. Not just saying, hey, I'll do whatever they do. And you know, these guys are my gods. No, of course not. But they, like Paul said, as I follow Jesus, you follow me. That's discipleship. And, you know, we, we, we like to do formal discipleship and sit people down and, and go through a book. You know what? But that's, that's not discipleship, really. Discipleship is following people and, and seeing how they go about their lives. Seeing how they handle themselves at work and how they raise their kids and how they treat their wives and their husbands and how they run their business. And how they react when somebody cuts them off on the road. You know, that's discipleship. Now, are we perfect? No. Because if you hung around with me long enough, you'd see that I make a lot of mistakes. But hopefully, hopefully, the majority of the time, you could say, you know what? I, I want to emulate that. That's how I want to respond. And then you just ignore, you know, the one out of ten or whatever. When, when maybe I don't have such nice things to say to somebody or... You know, when I don't treat my wife the way I should, and I don't respond to my kids the way I should. But that's discipleship. And you know what? When people blow it, you learn from that too. When people make mistakes, and you're following them, and you're getting dirty with them, you say, you know what? Wow, that was kind of not so cool. So I'll learn from that. I'll put that in the back of my mind, and I won't do that. But they learned, and they became followers of Paul and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit. And so now he moves from this work of faith to their labor of love. In verse 6, they became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit. And so this labor of love, we saw their work of faith, and now this labor of love. The labor was they followed their leader's example. They were an example to others. Look at verse 7. So that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia. That was really all of Greece. These two provinces in, in Greece. 
In that time were called Macedonia and Achaia. They became examples. This little church meeting in somebody's backyard, hiding from the authorities that wanted to kill them, hiding from the Jewish leadership. This little church, these believers that had only known the Lord a couple of weeks, they are examples to all that are in Macedonia and Achaia. And so you don't have to be a Christian for 20 years before you can be an example to somebody. You don't have to to have all of your theology down pat. You don't have to have read the Bible through and through to be an example. These people in their newness of faith were an example to many people. Not only to believers, as it says they were an example to all who believe in verse 7, but also to unbelievers. Verse 8, For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth. It's like a trumpet call, this word means. From them the gospel had been trumpeted forth. Not only in Macedonia and Achaia, so not only in Greece, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. In other words, the change that had occurred in these people's lives was so powerful, you guys, that when Paul went to other cities and and he would begin to talk about Jesus, they would say, yeah, weren't you just in Thessalonica? And we heard about that. You guys, when the Holy Spirit comes into our lives and makes mass changes like a hurricane through a trailer park, and you're going to know it, you'll be an example to other people. People will look at you and they'll say, man, there is something radically different about you. What is it? There is something so true and real and authentic, something I don't have, something I want, something I desperately want. There's a hope. There's, there's peace. And you become an example for others by deed and in word, not just in what you say, but so often just in, in how you live and, and how you treat people. And that's especially true for those of you that came to Christ later in life. And maybe you've grown up here and you know a lot of people. And people have seen you without the Holy Spirit. They've seen you before you came to Christ. And now they're looking at you and they're going, do I even know you? Who is this? And you have an opportunity to tell them of the hope that lies within you. That it's a hope in Jesus. And believe me, people are watching. People are noticing. We have a mission field right here in our own community. A huge mission field. And you guys are all missionaries. In the most powerful example of the gospel right here. I'm not the most powerful voice in your co-worker's life. It isn't the Christian radio. It's not a book. You guys, at this point in time, it's not the Bible. Because they don't read the Bible. It's you. You're the most powerful voice, the most powerful medium by which God is going to reach these people. He wants you to be an example to Prineville, to Crook County, to Central Oregon, and from from here in every place, so that we don't even need to, to say a whole lot. Paul just brings up what he's doing there, and they're like, yeah, 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 we've heard about this Jesus. And the same would be true here when we talk about Jesus. People are like, yeah. My coworker, man, radical. This family member. That's the kind of stuff I want to see and hear about Calvary Chapel. 
that people aren't necessarily talking about, you know, the, the outreaches that we do and the, the new building or any of those kinds of things. But that they're talking about the radical change that Jesus is making in the lives of, of us right here. That was their labor of love. Their work of faith was simply that they placed faith in Jesus Christ and it was real and it was authentic and it was true and it made a a radical change in them. And Paul said it wasn't with just word, it was in power and by the Holy Spirit. And if you look at verse 9, it says they turned to God from idols. That was their work of faith, Their, their faith in action, placing faith in Jesus, not just a prayer, but a, a, a work of faith. Faith works, as James says, that you show me your faith without works, and I'll show you my faith by my works, James said. And that faith without works is dead. And it isn't that we work so that God accepts us, and then we have real faith. It's that we place faith in Jesus He comes into our life, he radically changes us, and then we work. Then the works that, as Paul says in Ephesians, that have already been created for us, they just naturally happen as a byproduct of the Holy Spirit coming into our life. It's just natural. You can't help it. So when the Holy Spirit comes into you, there will be changes. It's not ambiguous. There's not a question. But you don't have to work at it. Do you see the difference? There will be fruit. There will be works. But they will be a natural byproduct of his presence in your life. And you'll just be like, wow, I don't know what's going on here. But there are radical changes in my life. That's the work of faith. And then this labor of love is a response to that. We begin to follow others' example. We begin to be an example to others. And then we begin to preach the gospel both in word and in deed. And people get saved. And it's this continual, perpetual cycle of people coming to Christ, getting discipled, and then leading others to Christ in discipling them. That's the labor of love. That's a healthy church. That's how we want to be defined and described here, you guys. That's what was going on in this young church. And Paul concludes... In verse 10, by talking about their patience of hope, this endurance of hope. The word patience or endurance here, it means to remain under, to remain under. The idea of pressing on despite our present difficulties. You know what our tendency is as people is to quit, right? It starts when you're like three or four years old and you, you know, you're, you're put in to your first team sport or activity. My daughter has already quit like three or four things. And I know it sounds horrible. We're trying to find out what she likes. Now she's doing karate. She hates it now. You know why she hates it? Because it's hard. They make her do push-ups. They're not really push-ups, what she does. She doesn't move her arms. All she does is move her torso. They make her listen. They make her pay attention. You know, my son, we just kind of threw threw him in there because it's like the same price for two. So we just throw him in there. He's like clueless. He's just standing over there like... And they're like, Carson, hello, pay attention. And then like two seconds later, he's off and never, never land again. But Caitlin wants to quit. She now wants to do ballet, which she already quit. 
Why do you want to do ballet? Because it's more fun. Karate's hard. But we're going to make her stick this out, at least for a time. How many kids have you seen, you know, six, seven, eight years old, sitting on first base with their arms folded, you know? I want to quit. Or they strike out and they're bawling and they want to quit, you know? And it, it, it's just sort of this pattern that gets developed at a young age. I remember playing football as a young kid, like 10 years old, and, and I quit because it was too hard. The coach, like, picked me up and threw me into the right hole because I didn't run the right hole. You know, I was carrying the ball, and I, instead of running through the, the hole, I ran around the, the end. I thought, hey, there's nobody there. I'll just run around the end. <laughs> and the coach picks me up and just throws me through the hole, you know, and I just said, I'm done. This is stupid. I never played organized football again. It, it's easier to quit than to endure. People read the Bible. I don't get it. I quit. People go to church. Nobody talk to me. I quit. Go to work. I don't make enough money. I quit. They're not nice to me. I quit. Just quit all kinds of things. And you know what? Some of you want to quit life. I can see it on your faces. I can see it in your expressions. I can see it in the hopeless speech. You just want to quit. You want to give up. Maybe you already have given up. And you're just sort of in cruise control. You're just in neutral. And, and you've just given up on life. And there's no hope. There's no joy. There's no rest. There's no fulfillment in the abundant life that Jesus says he has for you in John 10.10. 10, that I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. That is so far from reality. It might as well be that $700 billion that the government is giving companies to bail them out. It's so far from reality for you. You can't remember the last time you had peace or had hope. You just want to give up. And you guys, God sees you right now as that six, seven, eight-year-old on first base with your arms crossed. God sees you as that kid that's bawling on his way back to the dugout because he just struck out. God sees you as Caitlin that says, I don't want to do this. I want to quit because it's too hard. He loves you. Just like we love our kids. But that's how God sees it. That's how he perceives it. Is that, yeah, your life is tough, and so you want to quit. And yet you're forgetting all of the heroes that have gone on before you that have endured under much greater things. You forget about the believers around the world in places like Burma, in the Middle East, in South Africa, in the Sudan, who are being murdered and persecuted and beaten for their faith. They don't even know what it is to have a dollar in their pocket. And they can't even fathom the wealth that we have. They don't know what it is to not have trials. They've lost children to AIDS and to malaria and to common illnesses that we can go down and get some antibiotics for and, and have it taken care of like that. And they lost their daughter, their son, their family member to that common illness that for a couple bucks could have been cured. But they don't have the couple bucks or they don't have access to the medicine. You guys, I'm not trying to minimize the pain and the hurt and the things that we're going through. I'm not trying to do that at all. Just trying to give us a little bit of a reality check. And you know what? Things might get worse. Things very well could get worse economically, physically. In fact, I know that physically things are going to get worse. It's just a matter of time. Right? I mean, at some point, 
I mean, it was, it was treacherous to watch my dad at 56 years old die the way he died. But at some point, he was going to die. So it just exacerbated the process. That's true of all of us. So often, I think it's true that, that Christians want to go to heaven. They just don't want to die. They, they just don't want to have to go through the natural process to get there. I think so often... We say we believe in a faithful God and a provider who's going to meet all of our needs as long as everything's going well. It's easy to say that when you got a job and things are clicking and the phone's ringing and the money's rolling in. But do we believe that when that isn't true? Does God need to provide for you in the conventional means or can he provide for you in the miraculous? Do you really trust him? Do you have hope? That's what Paul wants to communicate in verse 10 as he says, remain under these things. Your patience of hope. Don't quit. Don't give up. And here's why. Because you are waiting for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. And so Paul gives two reasons why we should endure, why we shouldn't quit. Two reasons that I want you guys to be aware of this morning. Two reasons. One, Jesus is alive and he's coming back. Jesus is alive. The resurrection. You see, the worst thing that can happen in this life, the thing that everybody is fearful of is death, right? Even in the the economic situation, the crisis that befalls us, what are we really afraid of? Ultimately, it's death. Because we're going to lose all of our money and we're going to starve to death. And we're going to shrivel up and just just die. Right? I mean, ultimately, that's the end result of it, is death. Or that they're going to take our house, we're going to be out on the street, we're going to freeze to death. We're afraid. We're afraid of of that which we do not know. We're afraid of the, the uncertainty of death. But Jesus is alive. He rose from the grave. He conquered death. And so we need not fear death. Because we have hope beyond this life. You have hope beyond this present economic crisis. And believe me, I'm not standing up here saying I'm not concerned. I mean, I am. I don't have any money. You know, I don't, they can, you know if, the, if my bank folds up, it'll be like, oh, well, I lost 50 cents, you know. <laughs> it's not that big of a deal. I don't have any stock, so I'm not worried about that. I do have some debt, though. Maybe that'll go away. That'd be cool. (laughs) But the fact is, is that Jesus is alive. He's conquered death. He's conquered the grave. He's conquered all of our fears and the things that we're fearful about. And he's coming back, whether by your personal death, which will bring about his return for you, or by rapture, by his return to take the church to be with him. Jesus is alive and he's coming back. And secondly, a second reason why we should remain under your present difficulties and endure through them in patience of hope is that we have been delivered from the wrath to come. Even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. You guys, everybody's afraid of death. But what people ought to be afraid of is the wrath of God. The Bible says, don't fear man who can take your life. But fear God, who can take not only your physical life, but your spiritual life as well. And separate you from himself in utter darkness for all eternity. That is what we ought 
to be afraid of. Right now, everybody's running around afraid of the wrong things. And you know what? The devil absolutely loves it. He loves it. You're afraid of the economic crisis? Oh, I love it. This is beautiful. I've got everybody running around paranoid that the world is going to fall apart economically. Meanwhile, meanwhile, everybody is forgetting about their need for Jesus. This is beautiful. Guys, whether you're a Christian or not here this morning, do not forget about your need to run to Jesus and to find hope in him in your present situation. Because we can be distracted by many, many things. Jesus is going to deliver us from the wrath to come. God's wrath is ready to be poured out on a Christ-rejecting world. Our God is a God of love, perfect love. But he's also a God of judgment, perfect judgment. Just like when you see a criminal on the nightly news and you think to yourself, they need to be judged. I hope that they receive justice. And when they don't, you're outraged. That sense of justice has been given to you by your creator who's perfect in his judgment. And he has to judge sin. He has to. But Jesus took the judgment for us at the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus cried out in anguish because at that moment, God the Father was pouring out his wrath upon him. And the wrath that Jesus speaks of here, I believe, is both the ultimate wrath at the judgment seat of Christ, the great white throne of judgment, where every unbeliever, every person has not given their life to Jesus and trusted him will be judged for their sin. But he's also talking about a specific time that the Bible calls in 1 Thessalonians details later as the great tribulation. A time in which God will be pouring out his wrath on a world that has rejected his son. And you can read about it in Revelation 6 through 19. A time in which is going to be a mind blower. You think things are bad? Read Revelation 6 through 19. People are going to work an entire day to buy a loaf of bread. You think your wages are bad now. What's a loaf of bread? Three bucks? Eight hours? Three dollars? What's that? Not even two bucks an hour. I can't even figure out the math. Two dollars an hour would be 16. It's not even 50 cents an hour is what I meant to say. Things are going to get way worse. The Bible promises us that. Now, my personal theology believes that we are going to be taken out of this period of the great tribulation because he says right here, we're going to be delivered from the wrath to come. But you need to know Jesus. To be delivered from either one of those judgments, the ultimate judgment for the whole world or the specific judgment that God is pouring out in that time called the great tribulation. You need to know Jesus. He is the the key that will deliver you from the wrath of God because he took God's wrath upon himself. Do you have that hope this morning? You guys, we're going to close with a time of worship. And I know we're, we're a little bit uh, late as it is. But we're going we're gonna to close. We're going to close with, with just a time of singing and worship to God and, and a time 
to come forward for prayer. And I would encourage you, no matter how small or how big, if God is putting things on your heart and saying, you know what, you need prayer. You need to be supported. You you need someone to come alongside you. Come forward and receive prayer this morning. If you've been one that's just ready to give up, ready to throw in the towel, ready to quit, you're not having a patience of hope. You're not looking to Jesus. Whatever you need, physical, mental, financial, marital, something to do with your children, whatever it is you need this morning, we want to pray for you. The elders will be up front, and we're going to be available just to pray with you, to love you, to take you to Jesus so that you can find rest and hope in your time of need. So the worship team is going to come up. I just encourage you to worship the Lord this morning. Maybe you're here and you think, man, you've been talking a lot about having a relationship with Jesus and you've been talking about really, truly knowing him and you think, you know what, I don't know him. I've never asked him into my life. I've never had the Holy Spirit come into my life and you want him today, we'll be available to pray with you. Don't leave here without Jesus. Don't leave here without receiving him into your life. You've been listening to Pastor Ryan Couch of Calvary Chapel, Crook County. For more information, you can write to us at P.O. Box 378, Prineville, Oregon, 97754. Thanks for listening, and God bless.